Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Plot Lines. I'm your host, Connor, and today is a glorious day uh, in my life. And uh, that's because I get the chance to interview uh, His Imperial and Royal Highness Ambassador Edward Archduke Edward Habsburg. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, your uh, Ambassador. Thank you, Connor, for having me on Plot Lines. Yeah, it, uh, it's you know, this in some sense feels like it's been in the making for my entire life. I've had a love, a great love of the Habsburg dynasty uh, since I since fifth grade. Wow. How come? How did you uh, discover the Habsburgs? I was, uh, it, it's, it's oddly connected to the American Revolution, which doesn't make sense. But uh, we were learning about the American Revolution in fifth grade. And the way my teacher taught it got me so interested in history. And then she suggested, she or she suggested to my mother a bunch of history books uh, to read. They were very basic history books, but they went through like across like all of uh, all of history basically. So from uh, you know from ancient history to modern history. And, you know, for me, it was it had a lot of pictures and stuff like that because, you know, I was fifth grade. You know, it wasn't like a it wasn't like a thick te textbook necessarily. Mm -hmm. But uh, the Habsburgs stood out uh, in in that book uh, as well as the Holy Roman Empire. You you would probably appreciate Jonathan Singleton's book on the American Revolution and the Habsburg Empire that just yes, came out, I would say, a year ago or so or two. I mentioned it in the, at the end of my book. Oh, yeah. There's a book about that? Wow, that's amazing. Yes, there's a book about the influence the American um, revolution had on the Habsburg lands. Very oh, interesting yeah. read. Very interesting read. Yeah, well, I'll have to get to that. Uh, well, first of all, you uh, behind you is uh, the image of your book, uh, The Habsburg Way, uh, seven, is it seven... Rules, rules, rules for, for turbulent, turbulent times. times. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, able to read it, and it's an absolute great. Uh, it's an absolute great book uh, to to get a chance to read. Now, being someone who read a lot about the Habsburgs, it is a great uh, refresh in a lot of ways, and it also uh, gives a very good. Um, it gives very good like short stories. I feel like it's kind of a compilation of short stories. Is that a good summation? Yes, it's a very good summation. My idea was to do two things at the same time, give you a, a, a chance to get to know the main characters of our family history through mostly through stories and anecdotes that will stick to your mind, but not just write a history of the family, but also try to find out what are the, the central, the core values, the core principles, the rules that our family always followed over 800 years of history? And how would it be to apply them today? And why are we not following these things anymore? And, and I began thinking about all that. But my major thing is I want to tell really cool stories about my family uh, because there are, there are great stories to be told in the Habsburg family. Yeah, no, very, very, very true. Uh, thank you for writing it. First of all, it's uh, it's um, it's uh, wonderful to also get the perspective of a member of the dynasty in in such a form. Yes, it's well, it's very important that I pointed out at the beginning. I didn't want to write a new comprehensive history of the Habsburgs. There are very very good uh, histories of the Habsburgs out there. Very useful, extremely well written by Martin Rade, the new one, for instance. So um, didn't want to do that. I wanted. You know, make a writer personal love letter to my family, but also give you something in the hand. Uh, for instance, I have an opening chapter where I give you five dates that you need to memorize about the family, and then you can talk with competence about the Habsburg family. You know, so I know people don't have much time. Reading a book with more than three pages is is a call for many of us. Um, but that's why I also accompany the whole thing um, on Twitter with my Habsburg championship. Uh, yeah, so I try to. <laughs> I really try to make the Habsburgs uh, more easy to grasp for today's audiences. And uh, I, if you give me a book with 400 pages, 
you will have to convince me to begin to read. But mine, it's, it's slim. Everybody can take it out. And it looks really beautiful. I absolutely love this cover. Yeah, the cover is absolutely amazing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so why are Habsburg principles important in this day and age? Well, first of all, uh, the Habsburgs are a family that is that seems to be loved. I have a feeling of love for the Habsburgs all over the world. There's a reason for that. We don't have a history of violence. We don't have a history of intrigues. We are not bloody warlords that have conquered countries. We are mostly known for um, bringing countries together and making them live peacefully by marriage politics, by faith, by justice, by all these topics that, that appear in my book. And, um, and you ask yourself, if something went really well for several hundred years, um, then there must be something in it. And now we look around us, we don't see monarchies anymore. We see monarchies in a few countries in Europe. These are constitutional monarchies. They are in the way of shadow of what the monarchy used to be. Um, and none of them is a real traditional Catholic monarchy as the Habsburg monarchy used to be. Um, and when I think of all that, I ask myself, what happened 100 years ago? Was it good that all these monarchies went away? But also, was it good that all these principles that come from and uh, stem from these monarchies have been more or less put onto a dusty shelf, um, as I feel it sometimes. And uh, then I look at our world today, and I realize uh, many people have the feeling, especially in the last three years, um, that um, that uh, that we we don't know what our politicians are doing with us. Uh, we are not certain who makes the decisions worldwide. All these sort of worries that creep up. And I felt that a few parts of what the Habsburgs try to do in their countries might be an answer to these worries and might even be an answer to the problems we have today in politics. So I wrote this book. Yeah, the, I, I really do agree that the Habsburgs have a lot to give. And uh, I'm very glad that uh, you provided a way of understanding the Habsburgs in, in this manner, because, you know, I might be willing to read a 400 page book on the Habsburgs, <laughs> but you're right. There's uh, that may not be the uh, the situation for everyone. I'll, I'll give you one or two examples. Um, nowadays, when we walk mostly through Europe in the States, it's still a bit different. But here in Europe, uh, you walk through the, through the countries of Europe. You don't see any uh, politicians in positions of prime minister or president who seem to be married or to have children or grandchildren. If they have them, they hide them really well, but many of them aren't. Um, you don't see family among our leaders. In the, Habsburg, uh, in the Habsburg land, you always saw a family at the leaders. You knew about all the 12 children that were born. You knew where they married. You knew how they looked like. Um, you saw family life um, lived in front of your eyes by the respected leaders of your country. And you said to yourself, well, if they can have a family life and if they follow these values, then I can have that too. Nowadays, if you decide to found a family and have more than one and a half children, you feel like you have to, uh, you have to suit yourself. You have to, you have to explain to other people why you do something so crazy, why your parents, for instance, don't prioritize uh, work life and having two cars instead of one. Um, when, when we got married, my wife and me, and uh, my wife that worked before that, but she decided to stay at home and be a stay-at-home mom. Um, she said, it's really unthinkable for me because I had to explain to all my friends, I had, you know, I had to really explain it to them. They looked at me and said, why? So if you have, if you have political leaders that are visibly family people, then this will be different. We don't have that anymore. We don't have that anymore. I, I come from a country, Hungary. Uh, our prime minister shows himself with his family. Our president, Kotry Novak, was not only our family minister, but is married and has small children and chose herself with them. And, uh, and many, many of our politicians show that they are family people. This is just one example. Another example is 
that, I, well, it's a story I like to tell about Blessed Emperor Karl, our last emperor. Now, Blessed Karl, in the eyes of the world, would probably be seen as one of the greatest losers in the Habsburg family. He took over the empire one and a half years before the end of the First World War. Um, he desperately tried to make peace. He lost the war. The empire ended with him. He went into exile and he died of, uh, of a disease on an exile island of Madeira very short after that. And he tried twice to come back to Hungary and both times it failed. So this is the classical loser in the eyes of the world. But at the same time, he's, he's a giant in our family and a giant of faith. Now, why do I talk about Blessed Karen? I could talk for hours, but this is, of course, not the topic of our <laughs> talk today. Um, uh, when he was in exile and he suffered for what was going on in his countries and he couldn't help, he once looked over to the church on the hill and then his wife saw him say, yes, yes, I will do it. And, uh, and then later on, at some point, she asked him, what did you say there? And he said, he, I promised to God that I'm ready to give my life so my people can have peace. And then he began to have this, this illness and was in bed and had terrible pain, terrible suffering for weeks. And his eyes were always on the Blessed Sacrament, which was outside um, his room. And, um, and, and he offered up his, his sufferings, his, his life, his disease and his death for his people. Now tell me one politician, one politician nowadays, which would do something like that. Most of our politicians have a career. Then they leave their career where they serve the state and go into business and make some money and make more money and don't have the responsibility anymore for the country. Uh, the Habsburgs never had the choice to step out and say, that's it, thank you very much. I'd like to have a nice and calm evening of my life. No, and the decisions you make will influence the ones that your son or your daughter have to make. So what I'm trying to say is we have values here and we have an attitude towards serving your country that we seem to very often be missing. Now, there are good politicians. They are great politicians. But our system does not encourage such an attitude. And this was something that was normal 100 years ago. So I asked myself, why is it not normal anymore today? Yeah. Leader, uh, leaders who serve are not are a dime a dozen uh, at this point. Because and even you know you mentioned going into a different career after their after being a politician. A lot of politicians, at least in the United States, seem to have made so much money from being a politician that they don't even need a career. Yes, yes. In in fact, um, uh, the Habsburgs never considered themselves rich. I mean, of course, if you're a king or an emperor, you're somehow rich. But um, but money was never never the central thing in the Habsburg history. It was justice, it was family, it was faith, it was empire and subsidiarity, a topic that's very important. And uh, a topic, I think, among the words I'm talking about in my book, subsidiarity is probably the most important for our times and for the political trouble that we feel in our time. And um, if, if you agree, Connor, I will, I will talk a bit about that. Um, now, that's also one of the points where the Holy Roman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the United States of America are very close. Um, this is one of the greatest surprises when I wrote this book. I realized how close some of the Habsburg thought and some of what the United States are built upon uh, are to each other. And one of those things is the so-called subsidiarity. Um, now, what, is, what does subsidiarity mean? I don't really have to explain that to an American because America is built with the idea uh, from grassroots up. Um, America is built on the smallest unit, built on the family, uh, on the home, on the township. Above that, the county is already more fuzzy. The state should be even more fuzzy. And the whole federal level should be something very, very distant because we all know that... Um, Human beings are made for the close society around them. It's very difficult for us to have um, to have ideas about global things. And so, a good a good state is one that respects the lower levels. And subsidiarity says that the higher level of organization should not take over duties 
that can be better done by the lower level of an organization. Which means, for instance, in the United States, that the central government should not mingle and mix in things that the state can do better. And that's the great thing about the United States. The states really have power still and can do things differently from the federal government, which is, which is strong. It's a strong thing. Same thing went for the, the Habsburg land in the, in, in, the, in the Holy Roman Empire, of course, but also afterwards in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, you try to respect in every country the languages, the laws, the privileges, the, the, different, the different nationalities, uh, the habits in the country. And the Habsburgs are very good at that. And uh, whenever they try to do it differently, whenever they try to do um, a centralistic empire, it always went terribly wrong. And um, that's why, and if we look at the European Union today, for instance, the problems that we sometimes feel within the European Union is always when we feel that Brussels centralism is trying to put their fingers into our local affairs, uh, which we can just best for ourselves, we're a sovereign nation. But there is a strong, you know, if you have a center, if you have a centralistic power, the tendency to amass power and take more power is always there. This is how bureaucracy works. And this is, I think, uh, why subsidiarity, the respect for the lower level, the respect for the single unit is very, very important today. Yeah. Also for Americans, uh, that, you, that word usually is associated or would be usually used federalism usually people use federalism yes. subsidiarity the word itself is uh too catholic for the united states i think <laughs> uh so that it's not as used pr as much but yeah no it's it's definitely a principle at least it's a principle that uh we tell ourselves we have it's it, it's not something it seems that our politicians necessarily have but it's definitely a principle of uh, of the Constitution and uh, of the past for the United States. And I think a lot of people do uh, hearken back to that often. Now, you mentioned uh, Blessed Carl be, you know, being to the world a loser, you know, but in so many ways, he's the biggest winner of, of the family because he's a blessed. He's the only yes. uh, Habsburg that's a blessed it's and the greatest stories are ones of uh of of heroically standing for what for uh you know for the faith and uh and your people and not giving in there are so many stories of people giving in those aren't the heroes of the story the heroes yes just because you uh lose your empire doesn't mean uh you are it it usually means you're the hero of the story yes absolutely uh i, I you know i was a script writer in a former life and i've written novels um so that fits to our to the title of this of this show plotland and a, a friend of mine who was also a script writer said that, that the greatest stories are are epic uh are, are are epic stories where in the end the hero dies but has stood for his for his values, I mean, uh, we treat it a bit in Christianity because Christ died for everything he stood for and for our sins, but he, of course, rose from the dead. But uh, what, what I'm trying to say is, Blessed Carl uh, is really a giant, a giant, a soft-spoken giant of faith. I see uh, so many young people take to him. In the United States, that's the craziest thing. America has no monarchistic... Uh, tradition. I mean, they're, they're monarchists there. And it's perhaps easier to be a romantic monarchist if you never had a monarchy in your on your continent. Well, we did. We just overthrew him, un uh, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think it really counts because uh, the United States formed themselves uh, without the English monarchy really interfering. And uh, so, but what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is... Um, I, I spoke in Dallas last uh, last year on Blessed Carol. There were 700 people in that conference hall. Half of them were young, many families with small children, 50 babies. And they loved this man, this soft-spoken, not imposing-looking man who looked, you know, like, like um, something very small and kind beside this 
overpowering statue of an emperor that had ruled before him. And, uh, but of course what he did, and you know, we have a, we have a WhatsApp group in the Habsburg family. We're, we live in 2023 20, too, so. And I once, made, I once made a poll in that Habsburg group where I asked our younger family members, who's your favorite Habsburg? As I'm doing it now on Twitter, where people can vote, you know, I believe in democracy. Um, people can vote for their favorite Habsburg. So I asked them, so what's your favorite Habsburg? And I, I threw out a few names, you know, Maximilian, Charles V, Franz Joseph, Maria Theresia, all those names. And nearly all of them voted for Blessed Emperor Karl. And I said, why? Why? Why would, you know, what you would call a loser in the world, why would he, why would he be the star? And one of them answered, I think it's a beautiful thing. He said, because in his faith, in his vocation, family life, and in his job, which he happened to be emperor, he tried to be very, very good. And this is something that every one of us can do. Not all of us are emperors, but you can live your job, your family life, and your faith life with all you have, with love, with dedication, and that's what he did. And that's why he can be an example for all of us. Most of us are not called to sit on a throne, I'm pretty certain. Um, but many of us may be called to family life. And whatever job we have, I'm as a diplomat, I'm trying to fill this job with love, with care, with faith, with prayer. Um, this, this is something we can do. So I think this is one of the reasons. Of course, he is a blessed of the church, like is a venerable of the church, the other member of our family that made it to venerable and uh, ho hopefully one day we'll make it to blessed of saint and uh, that is um, magdalena venerable magdalena of austria um, she was a beautiful daughter of emperor ferdinand the uh, first he wanted to marry her off of course she was brilliant very intelligent very devout and in her youth she was painted by Archimboldo. you can see it on my uh, on my twitter championship really fantastic painting so with that your twitter in the in the description so people can follow you that's very kind so, and and then one day she decided no well all her life she had a relationship with god and one day influenced by saint peter peter canisius the famous jesuit saint who was her confessor she decided she wanted to found a monastery become abbot and with two of her sisters and the father said, of course, no way, no way, I have plans for you. Uh, we, we can send your youngest uh, sister, she's weak, but you, you knew I need to marry off. And then, of course, in the end, they prevailed. She founded a monastery, and she was one of the champions of counter-reformation in Tyrol and in the Austrian land, and she helped very strong. She was one of the, the major people bringing back the Catholic faith uh, to Austria. And it's because she followed her vocation, uh, even even in the face of opposition from her father. Wonderful, wonderful woman. And um, yeah, but this is this is just two of the of the saintly ones we have. We have just people who are brilliant emperors, with people who are great law lawmakers, very courageous soldiers. We've got a great mixture. Yeah. Uh, so kind of going back to sort of the beginning of the dynasty, you you're focusing, you know, on piety and you know faith so uh how do you think emperor rudolph set the tone for the dynasty in when it comes to piety with him giving up his horse for his lord like how do, how do you think that factors in well uh i, I would say uh, rudolph established at least two of the things that i write about in my book well several i would say several uh, three at least of those seven points um, but I would begin with your right in faith matters. He gave a great example because uh, while he was a, a rather tough soldier and he let he waged wars uh, when necessary, um, he was a devout man. And when he was still a count in Switzerland before he became emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, one day he was hunting in his forests and a priest arrived with a viatic with a, with a, the body of of Christ to bring to a dying person. And the, the river was very strongly swollen and he couldn't cross over on foot as he had planned. So uh, Rudolf gave him his horse and asked him to take it to get to the, to the dying man. And so the priest sat on the horse, crossed the river, went to the dying man and came back about three hours later with a horse and wanted to give the horse back. And Rudolf said, this be far from me. 
that I will ever sit again on a horse that has carried my Lord. And the people in the area heard about this story and they said, this is a man that is called to greatness and God will reward this. And of course, he rewarded it with him being the first of our family to sit on the throne of the Holy Roman Empire. And the same Rudolf also, you know, people always ask, why did Habsburgs do this marrying politics stuff? Um, you know, other, other, other monarchs didn't do it that much. Habsburgs, it was their chief way of, of um, <clears throat> putting countries together and uh, of bringing peace. Simply because when you are emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, you, you have to juggle so many different countries, nationalities, languages. Um, princes, kings, dukes, um, rich and poor, and you cannot just, you know, like evil emperors in movies do, climb on the table or take your army and kill them all. Uh, but you have to keep all of this together. It's an incredibly complicated diplomatic chess game on three levels. And one of the best ways to keep peace between countries and to make peace also between enemies is to, to make marriages between your children. And Rudolf uh, did this already before he became emperor, but also afterwards. Um, he had one chief adversary that was Ottokar of Bohemia. Ottokar of Bohemia was the most powerful other uh, prince elector. And, and he, he had, in the 25 years of interregnum, when there was no emperor, he had uh, occupied large parts of Austria. And, and kept it for himself, which he couldn't because that was that was country that belonged to the empire. So Rudolf tried with negotiations, with talking, whatever he could uh, to convince him to give it back. And one step was he tried to offer his, his daughters to marry to his, to his sons to solve it that way, but Ottokar wouldn't have it. In the end, they had to duke it out in the greatest knightly battle of the Middle Ages of Dürrenkrutz, and Rudolf carried away the victory and the day, and, uh, and that's the beginning of our great story. So that's another one. Be brave in battle is one of them. Rudolf did that. Uh, marry and have many children. Rudolf did that. Believe in the empire. Most definitely did that. Be Catholic. Most definitely did that. Um, then we have, uh, you know, uh, know who you are. Uh, tradition. Uh, then you have die well. And then you have stand for justice. Rudolf reestablished the law in the Holy Roman Empire. Rudolf, I would say, is among the four or five Habsburgs that stand for nearly every point of the of the seven rules that I set out in my book. Yeah, I think one of the other reasons why people love the Habsburgs is they, they always seem like the underdogs. Yes, yes, well, not really. There was a time when they weren't the underdogs during Charles V when we ruled an empire um, that where the sun never set, we weren't really the underdogs. But I uh, still true. make the argument that they actually you, uh, the Habsburgs were still the underdogs in that situation. Well, somebody once calculated, and I think it's in Martin Radi's book, that all the income from the New World, all the gold and all the silver, didn't even amount to, I think, a third of the income of the French king. Yeah, um, right. But the Habsburg grew the far larger. So perhaps you're right. Perhaps you're right. And it's nice to be the underdog. Yeah, no, it's the Habsburg family, the under, the continuous underdogs. It's, <laughs> you, Very you, nice. Triumphs, the triumphs tend to be miraculous. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And and uh, but most of all, they were really a nice bunch. I you know I had to reread a bit all of the family history and. If you if your philosophy is, is getting married and having many children, and you will automatically be a nice family, and they always were, I think. I mean, a few of my, I you know, I, in my book, I, I I ask pardon of all our non-Catholic readers of my book because <laughs> I'm sometimes rather enthusiastic about members of my family, sometimes using more um, violent means to ensure the Catholic faith in their countries. Um, but that, of course, was a sign of love. Um, as uh, Ferdinand II once wrote, if I would, uh, wouldn't care about my subjects, I would leave them in their error. But I love them and their souls, and therefore I try to save them. So that's, yeah, that's, that's a different attitude. Yeah, that's, well, that's one thing that 
a lot of people don't understand about Catholics and some yes. a lot of Catholics don't understand about their own faith is that it's it's kind of really rude to be like I don't think you deserve the faith. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But um, as 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 I say in my book, if you live in a time where everybody goes to heaven and we know that everybody goes to heaven and as <laughs> As somebody once said, my ancestors, my Habsburg ancestors, lived in constant fear and worry whether they would make it. They knew they were sinners. They knew that there was going to be a judgment, not only for their personal lives, but also for how they behaved as emperors and with the responsibility they had. And therefore, they worked all their lives to ensure that they would make it to heaven. Nowadays, of course, some people say that the only thing you need to go to heaven is to die. And everybody goes to heaven because at every funeral, the priest always says, well, he's now with God. And we don't know yeah. this, of course. We don't know this. My ancestors were not sure whether they were going to make it. And therefore, all their life, they tried before God to do the best they could because they would have to one day, um, you know, render accountability for what they did in their life. And... Uh, that is a special situation that our politicians now, they're not worried anymore because they're going to go to heaven anyway. And uh, and also they can step out of their career and don't have to be worried with the country anymore. You just explained why I can't stand going to most funerals these days. It's it, it's it's like a torture for me. It's like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking, Father, why are we here if, if you're right? Yes, what are we absolutely. doing here? Why would we yes. have a mass for them? Well, we, we want to remember them. And uh, I understand father. Father thinks his family is grieving. They went through something terrible. They are sad. I don't want to um, put, more, uh, put more trouble on their shoulders. So I'm going to say nice and cuddly things. And uh, I understand it. It, it. It's a very nice impulse. But, you know, imagine if you really believe in life after death. And if you believe that we can pray for our dead, we Catholics believe that, you can give the grieving family something that they can do, something that they can do for the deceased, and in, instead of just, we'll remember you, which is absolutely ridiculous, because uh, all remembrance passes, um, all tombstones on cemeteries at some point won't be visited so often. This is not something to console us. We can console ourselves with knowing that our loved one lives with God or can make it to God if I pray enough for them. That is great. So uh, all, those, all those things were very, very clear through the Habsburgs. Uh, you know, he has a very nice story in my book, again, um, where one of the daughters uh, of uh, Maria Theresia got smallpox. And uh, smallpox had two possible outcomes. You died. Or you survive, but you were usually scarred and not beautiful anymore for the rest of your life. So it was a terrible thing, and smallpox passed through the whole book several times. And in that case, one of the girls got it. She was 12 years old. And the first thing she said, she was asking to send a priest to her so she could make a life confession. That was the first priority. Not even am I going to be beautiful or whatever. It was, I want to make a confession. A full confession. She died a few days later. And the man telling us this is not her confessor, it's her father. And her father was uh, Franz uh, of Lothringen, Franz Stefan of Lothringen. And he was, a, he was the only Freemason we had in the family. He was not a very, very devout man. He was a, he was a more humanistic Catholic. And, but he was deeply impressed by that girl making this first step and saying, it's about my soul. And this is something the Habsburgs, with very few exceptions that I speak about in my book, always did, always did, from the beginning to the end. They were very aware of their mortality, as should we be. Because, you know, some people think, I will turn to faith just before I die. When I lie on my deathbed, I will begin to pray. But it's like with, with jogging. You have to do the jogging for a long time until you can do jogging without breathing, without losing your breath and without, you know, this is something you cannot learn on your deathbed. Your faith must be, must be exercised over your entire life. For it to work in those last hours or minutes, you have no idea under which circumstances you will die. You don't know whether you will have 10 seconds 
or because a car crashes into you, or whether you will lie on a deathbed for, for, for weeks and not be able to move uh, a finger. You don't know. You don't know. But your life is preparation for that moment. And the folks were very aware of that. Yeah. Being conscious of our mortality as well as where our soul may go after death is very important. The last thing I'll say about the like uh, the funeral part is just that uh, like nine year olds, if a nine year old dies, like the and you then say like the, the like it's not as much of a tragedy when a nine year old dies. <laughs> like it's a, it's, a, it's a very important uh, question that you're asking, Connor. It's you know half of the children used to die before the 19th century, often in families. And uh, and you think like they must have gotten used to it by then, and you had so many, but it was a horrible tragedy every single time. They mm -hmm. suffered so much about the death of these children that they barely knew. I mean, I can imagine it. It was absolutely unthinkable if one of my children had died, and a few people I know who lost a child. This is incredible grief. Um, but uh, and, and that's that's on the other hand, it's a wonderful part of our family is there is a family family. We, you know, through, I, I, had to, I had to stop not to write the entire book about how Habsburg's lived family, which could be a future book. Um, it what was, I read. It, it was just something as you imagine it. The whole book under Maria Theresia with 16 children who all spoke, well, officially in the court, they spoke French, of course, as one did in the 18th century. But among themselves, they had this, this Austrian simple way of speaking, and there was a lot of noise, and there were lots of children everywhere. And Marie Theresia was, a, was an incredibly lively, uh, powerful, cheerful woman. She danced, she rode, she played cards. She, uh, there's a famous story when, when, her, uh, when one of her daughters had, the, I think, the first grandchild, um, and she learned about that. She was in the Hofburg, and she ran through the Hofburg. And she crashed onto the balcony um, inside, the, um, inside the, the theater there. And there was an opera being shown there. And she just interrupted that and lifted up the letter and says, my daughter has just had a child. And everybody got up and cleared. So this is, this is something I, I can feel a bit of that. I only have six children, not 16 like she had. But we live family very intensely. It is the greatest, the greatest gift that you can have if God gives you a great spouse, a great spouse, and you, you can form a family and God gives you the incredible grace of having children. And if you begin early enough and have lots of them, because one and a half children is not going to give you a big family experience, even if it's probably more rational and makes more sense because everything else is so expensive. There is nothing greater than sitting around the table with your six children and watching them and just saying, what have we done? <laughs> what have we done? And on the other hand, the beauty of seeing the interaction between all these different characters in the family, seeing the siblings, the younger siblings learning from the elder ones, the elder ones leading the younger ones, looking after them. Like, for instance, at our table, we, we always handed the, the weakest, the youngest one, food first. Sometimes the elder ones were really angry because they were so hungry. But they had to learn that the younger one gets faster. All these things you learn in a big family. I think it, it must be very difficult to learn all these values, all these basic uh, building blocks of democracy too, to learn them if you're alone at home uh, with your parents. And it's so much easier if you have siblings. Yeah, very true. Uh, you know, it's, uh, family is incredibly important. And if you have the opportunity to marry and have kids, that's uh, very important. Also, if you're worried about money, you know, just take heart that God will provide. I think that's, uh, we fear too much. We're not supposed to live in fear. And that's what prevents people from having big families these days. So all your material wealth can be taken away from you like this. Yeah. And um, we, we lived according to the rule. And there's a beautiful German saying, which I have to translate into, into English now. But in German, it sounds so, so cute. Uh, if the Lord gifts a tiny rabbit, he will also gift the grass. Um, and this is what we experienced very often in our life. There were points where we thought, how is this going to continue? 
and then somehow it worked and something came along and the Lord looked after you. My mother always used to say, you look after the Lord's things and the Lord will look after your things. So you work on your soul, on your relation, um, on your on your vocation, and, and God will look after the material things. And um, yeah, the Habsburgs were, I think, always like that. Yeah. Uh, you talked about uh, Ferdinand, is it the second who re-Catholicized uh, Austria? Yes. Uh, so, yes. how how else has the Habsburg family been the protector of Catholicism and even broadly Christianity? Um, first of all, there was a point in the 16th century where it looked like the entire empire would be become Protestant, and uh, the Habsburg emperors at that time were really weak thought. Uh, Ferdinand I was still halfway Catholic. Maximilian II was most definitely rather Protestant, as was his son, Rudolf II, who was in Prague. And uh, it got a bit better, but not much, under Matthias, Rudolf's brother, who took over from him. Um, at that time, the Habsburgs did not fight for the Catholic faith. In a way, you can understand it. If you're the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and suddenly half of the princes under you and electors are Protestant, you feel like you have advisors to tell you, oh, make them compromise, give them something. And it's a temptation. And Ferdinand II was the first one of the Habsburg emperors to strongly, strongly take up the flag of the Catholic faith again. And he's also much maligned for that. Many people can't stand him because he was a bad emperor because he sort of put uh, put the faith before state reason. And um, uh, Henry Kissinger in his in his book, Diplomacy, when he writes about Cardinal Richelieu. And Cardinal Richelieu basically said, I would make a deal with the devil if that would serve the state. I don't have to be Catholic in that. And he was a cardinal. And he never understood, he never understood Ferdinand II, who didn't make small concessions to the Protestant uh, princes under him um, and would have had peace in the empire. But he didn't. Because he believed that he was a Catholic emperor, and this is this is impressive. Now he wasn't the only one. I spoke about uh, Magdalena, um, uh, that was his his aunt, and but it continued. The Habsburgs, Leopold I, for instance, for me is a, a beautiful image. Um, Leopold I was like the most baroque um, Catholic emperor who lived with his family and his courtyard entire Catholic year. He began his his days with three holy masses. Uh, he followed three masses, reading along in the missals. Um, and, and he made processions. And the entire family was with him. There's a beautiful painting in the Rochuskirche, St. Rock's Church in, in, uh, in Vienna, Landstrasse. And you go in there, and on the left, on the wall, there's a painting where you see the city of Vienna. And in front of it, you see the emperor, his wife, his children, and on the other side, all the other children, kneeling and praying. Which is, the message is, your emperor is Catholic, be Catholic too. It is good to be Catholic. And then the entire court uh, celebrated those processions and, 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 and Catholic feasts with him. And of course, the greatest historian is of course the ambassador, because like me, I'm ambassador to the Holy See, to a very Catholic institution. I spent a lot of time in Holy Masses. I would say at least one or two Masses per week that I attend of colleagues of the Vatican, where I go officially as my work. I'm, you know, part of my work, I'm being paid for going to Holy Mass. And um, <laughs> the French, but the French ambassador uh, at the court of Leopold I, he wrote a letter home after the Easter celebrations. And he said, this is unbearable. I'm, I'm making this with a French accent. From Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, I've been kneeling 100 hours. <laughs> and, so you knew you were at the Catholic court. The court knew it and the population knew it. The entire city lived this faith. And, um, you know, the empress before birth went to pray in the Augustina Kirche. All women in the empire knew that the empress was going to do this. Maria Theresia, when her, when, her, when her labor began, she ordered a prayer, rosaries and adoration with exposed sacraments everywhere in the empire. This is something that shapes the people. 
And, um, you know, sometimes nowadays we call politicians devout Catholics, but we sometimes feel, I, I would like to see a real devout Catholic um, giving an, an example to people. And uh, when I had my Prime Minister Orban here in Rome um, visiting the Pope, and he's not a Catholic, he's a Calvinist. When he came to Rome to, to visit the Pope in last, uh, last August, he told me, I want to go to Catholic Mass before uh, we meet the Pope. And I said, we can arrange a Hungarian Mass in the basement of St. Peter's Basilica. We have a little chapel there. He said, no, no, I want to go to the normal Mass of the noble people pay my respect by going to Mass. So his wife is Catholic. They both went to Mass. They sat there, they held hands during Mass. This is a couple that is married a long time that impressed me. I sat directly behind them, they held hands. And he knelt down and he knelt down during consecration. He didn't do, go to communion because of course he's a Calvinist and he knows he shouldn't do it, but he knelt during consecration as a sign of respect. Now this, is a, a, a politician, a leading politician, uh, a head of government that shows how important faith is. Uh, we, we have lost that a bit, and I don't see it very much in Europe. The Habsburg stood for that. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. I want to ask something about your relationship with, you knew Crown Prince Otto, right? Yes, yes, Okay. yes. Did, did you ever ask him about the uh, the possibility of uh, him becoming king of Spain. I, I think, Frank, if I'm not mistaken, Franco asked him or uh, offered it, uh, the, the throne of Spain at some point. Uh, did you ever ask him about that or was that ever a topic of conversation? I never, I never asked him. And I think that he knew in every fiber of his, of his body that his responsibility was with Central Europe, with Austria, with Hungary, with the neighboring countries. Um, the story of Otto and what happened to Peter and his and Otto's siblings and him in the years uh, after the death of Blessed Karl is an incredible story. And you have to read it in my book. You can also read it in more detail in Charles Coulomb's book about Blessed Karl. And what do you do if the empire is ended and you're a Habsburg? What is your duty? What is expected of you? Do you fight with all your power for a restoration of the empire? Or do you find that something else might be asked of you in these times? And at the beginning, in, especially in the Second World War, he very strongly tried to do everything to help Austria with his connections to the United States, keeping the Allies from bombing certain parts of Austria, um, trying to find, get better treatment for prisoners of war from Austria and doing everything that Austria could be free one day. Um, so that was his way of doing this. And there were a few moments where there was a slight possibility of restoration in the air. So that must have always been on his mind. But after the war, he probably realized that the closest thing to doing your duty as emperor of the Holy Roman Empire or the Austro-Hungarian Empire is to fight for a united Europe under Christian principles to bring the countries together. That's what he did for the rest of his life. And he very, um, very clearly always included the countries that were at that point behind the Iron Curtain. So he insisted that there were always a few empty chairs in the European Parliament in order to symbolize the countries who could yet not be part of the Parliament. I remember the time when he told me about this. And I thought, dream on, the communist, um, this communism bloc will never fall. This will be here forever. We all thought that in the, in, in, in the 80s. We couldn't imagine it to go away. And then it went. And all those countries are now part of Europe and European Union. So really, um, what Otto did was show you how to, how to use your, your powers in a time when there is no emperor and no empire and you don't rule. And uh, the, this is a question every Habsburg has to ask themselves. Uh, I, I've, I've, handed, I've been handed down something, um, you know, a few uh, ideas, um, uh, a certain DNA, and, uh, and certain, uh, certain things that my ancestors stood for. What does it mean today? Does that mean uh, try to become a king somewhere, or does it mean something very different? And uh, this is what every Habsburg has to figure out for themselves. What is clear is that we, we always stand 
a bit in the limelight. We stand on the stage. Whatever we do, people will see what we do. They will listen to us. They will believe that we have answers to certain things. You have to learn to become a Habsburg. Um, but this is what happens, yes, since about 100 years in every generation of Habsburgs. And I, I answered the question by becoming a diplomat um, and by, by working for the peace between countries where I can bring together my, my faith, my belief in the living together of nations, um, many ideas that you have stood for. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is kind of a s silly question because we can't see the future, but uh, should we be expecting a restoration anytime soon? Somebody once said, um, history does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. I think mm -hmm. it's a beautiful image. We have no idea what crazy curveballs history will throw us. And sometimes I believe that in a few years we will laugh out loudly about what we thought that would happen in the future and what actually happened. Um, crazier things have happened. Right now, I don't see a monarchy popping out of nowhere in Austria. Mm -hmm. In Hungary, there is a stronger tradition. The crown is still very visible. The ha Hungarians are very kind with the Habsburgs. They have two Habsburg ambassadors, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, but the monarchy is not something that you can decree. It is something that has to grow out of the population. There has to be a strong consensus. And you have to feel that a monarchy um, is the right answer to the situation we live in, the best for the country at the current situation. For instance, I wouldn't advocate for a monarchy in the United States because America has a very, very strong founding myth and a very strong system without having a monarchy. Um, although my friend Charles Coulomb would probably disagree because he <laughs> even wrote a book. He wrote a book about a very funny book called The uh, Star-Spangled Star Crown. Yeah. And it's, um, it's a book written, you know, in retrospective where it says how, how quickly it happened. It's a very, very funny book. But what, very, what I'm saying is... a very good book, in my opinion. Yes, yes, yes. I love it. I love it. But what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that's a complicated question you ask. Of course, mm -hmm. uh, I, I write at some point in the book that what we that what we have in our DNA is to serve our countries in some way. And if if ever a monarchy would come back, uh, we would we probably would would be happy to serve and to and to help along. But I I look at today's constitutional monarchies, and I ask myself if a monarchy has a monarch that is basically a glorified president with a crown that has to read the speech that his prime minister writes for him and has to sign every law that his government um, presents to him, then I can understand uh, President Roosevelt. President Roosevelt went to visit Emperor Franz Joseph uh, in Vienna in the Hofburg. They had a 38-minute talk. And at some point of this talk, uh, Roosevelt asked Franz Joseph, you know, a bit ironically, saying, um, you know, like we have parliaments and politicians and elections. What exactly is your job as an emperor? <laughs> and um, and Franz Joseph answered, my job is to protect my people from their politicians. Yeah. And I sometimes ask myself who protects us from our politicians, who protects us from our political system, who doesn't have to think four years ahead to the next election and weigh every word that you say in order not to become unpopular. Um, yes. So yeah. there are always arguments for monarchy. There are monarchies. And some, of, some good countries are monarchies. And that's a long and complicated answer to your question. That's a great answer. I agree with you on the, on the last part, especially the uh, what, what good is a monarch when they don't have any if they have to do everything the prime minister says in that in that circumstance i uh brought it up or or the america part interesting i saw a lot of people throw uh floating the idea that they'd want you to be uh, uh the american monarch if uh we ever had one um and uh i so if if you're want if you want a swell of support some uh someday not specifically for you but just in the sense of monarchy you know People there is, are. There is people an old tradition. There is an old tradition for countries who want to become monarchies to 
to, to call upon, upon a younger member of another family. This happened a lot in the 19th century. But as I said, I, really, I think the United States are a, a fantastic system. They are built by an incredible spirit. I, the more I, I'm, I'm again rereading uh, on democracy in America by Tocqueville, America has the potential to be a force that can right now, in many ways, heal and save the problems we have in the world. Through the elements that I speak about in my book, The Habsburg Way, we're very similar in this, and therefore I don't really see a monarchy coming on, even if some countries in the United States, like Florida, uh, California, and Texas are old Habsburg countries. Mm -hmm. And if we ever come back, we will come through one of those countries. <laughs> okay, awesome. Well, my final question for you is, how is it being part of a government that seeks to protect the family and solidarity? I'm very proud to be ambassador uh, of Hungary to the Holy See. Um, it, you don't have to, as an ambassador, agree with everything your government does. In fact, a good ambassador is, is also doing his job really well when he doesn't agree with everything his government does. But I happen to agree with everything my government does. <laughs> I found that out after I became ambassador and that I really agree with, with everything and that my government in many ways, I see it in, in, the current, in the current crisis about Ukraine, I see it in the topic of migration, I see it in the topic of family, of sovereignty, um, gender ideology. My, my government gives me courage to speak up more courageously than I probably would as a cautious Catholic that never wants to step onto anybody's toes. Um, so it's wonderful to be Hungarian ambassador. It's always fun because hey, you're the ambassador of Belgium or uh, you know, uh, you know what, uh, Portugal. People say, ah. But if you say you're the ambassador of Hungary, they say, ah, Hungary. <laughs> well, I have a question for you. So it's never dull. It's always fun. Um, we have an impossible language. We have a beautiful flag. We have the most beautiful anthem in the world. The Hungarian anthem is so beautiful that I cry every time when I sing it. Um, so yeah, it's cool to be ambassador of Hungary. It's very cool to be ambassador to the Holy See. I'm thankful to God that he brought me here. I wasn't always ambassador. I was scriptwriter too and spokesman for a bishop. So I was many things, but I'm in the best place in the world right now. And uh, I hope to stay here for quite some more while if God allows and prime minister all around. Uh, wonderful. Uh, I know uh, Prime Minister Orban also wrote a, a foreword for your book. Yes, um, yes, so that's, yes. So that's exciting. Uh, so if, if anybody doesn't know, you have a YouTube channel. Uh, you don't use it that much, but uh, no. you do. You do. So I will uh, share that as well. Um, I, you know, all this is. You know, I'm just very honored to get to talk to you uh like this and you know after meeting you in uh dallas last year uh it's just uh it's a pleasure talking to you and uh really thank you for your time yes thank you connor for inviting me for your great great podcast slash um youtube um uh, show and i wanted to say if people want to reach out to me and interact with me you can really do this on twitter I only have like 58,000 followers and I still can answer every single uh, direct message. And I nearly always manage to answer all the reactions to my tweets. Uh, I enjoy this still. At some point in the future, it won't be possible anymore, but I still can. So if you want to interact with the Habsburg, don't hesitate to follow me and, and, and try to talk to me. And again, thank you for this talk. We had a few, we had a few very, very good and interesting uh, questions and conversations I feel I hope not too controversial for your American <laughs> friends <laughs> uh, well to be honest I think uh, controversy sells <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah no uh, also you're you're very much a man of the people on Twitter so uh, thank you for that and also uh, it's well do your books you you have two in English you have the Habsburg way and you have your uh, children's book uh, yes, I know there are others that are in different languages. Uh, yes, will those ever be translated, or will you if ever? If I'm really, really famous and make a lot of money, they will probably be. I wrote a little book about James Bond. I wrote a little book about Harry Potter. Uh, I wrote books about castles. I wrote two or three novels in German. 
Uh, but I think if you read the Habsburg way and if you, you buy your children um, Dubby, the double-headed eagle, which is a, a very quaint and fun way to get to know our um, our coat of arms, uh, the double-headed eagle, um, then you then you then then you'll have fun. Yeah, awesome. Anyways, Thanks, uh, Thank you. And uh, oh, wait, uh, I forgot. I have to show you a meme before we go. Please show me a meme. Uh, you might have already seen it. Probably you have, but let's see. Yes. <laughs> we we could have uh, we could have an entire an entire show about Habsburg jaw, uh, <laughs> Habsburg chin, and all the things that people throw at me on on Twitter. This is really fun. I haven't seen it. Uh, I haven't seen it. Um, this is a hilarious. new one. You have yeah. to send it to me. I'm collecting these. I will I'll send it to you. Uh, awesome. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, thank you everyone for that, uh, for watching, please like, share, comment, and subscribe. Also, I'm on rumble just in case, uh, I, I get taken down from YouTube. Uh, so thank you everyone. And, uh, God bless. Bye. Bye.